When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. So when I was about 11... Uh, my family moved to Florida. I was not a kid that had grown up around water a lot. I wasn't necessarily used to the ocean. I was excited to do it. You know, most of the time I was used to riding bikes around the city. And so it was pretty cool. Um, a couple of my friends at the new school, they surfed and I thought that was neat. So I saved all my money from chores and I got my mom to drive me to a surf shop where I handed $60 over to purchase this old used gargantuan single fin surfboard that I could barely carry like my arm like it was hard for me to like even get my arm long enough to to grab the bottom of it and this thing was like the jalopy of the ocean but I was so psyched you know because like I was a beach kid now for those early teenage years like sixth seventh eighth grade when the waves were good I'd go after school or on the weekends with my friends my dad would just drop me off at one of the breaks near us and my friends would be there and he'd come pick me up two hours later. The board, it was totally huge. I was tiny and it felt like a real adventure because like I would never feel totally comfortable in the water. Even when it was like kind of medium sized, like we'd we'd go out, I'd fall on the bigger waves and I'd feel like I was on the verge of drowning the entire time. The board would drag me around and I would like eventually wash up on shore, sputtering and exhausted. The feeling of riding waves was incredible, like undeniably so. But I never really came to like the rest of the package. Eventually, you know, I ended up gluing rocks to a seawall so that I could climb in Florida because there was no climbing in Florida and that's what I wanted to do. Um, and the, the wall was about 12 feet tall. You had to go at low tide. Um, I made these boulder problems and a 50 foot traverse, but I was like the weird kid that was there, like climbing around rusted rebar, even though there was like good surf right behind my back. It was totally janky, but I loved it. And it felt better than surfing to me. And I would, you know, I would still go occasionally in the water, but my heart was never in it the same way. But to this day, I am still totally in awe 
of people who are good at surfing and a big wave surfing in particular. Like I will watch YouTube videos of that because it's just incredible. Like at some point in my life, I'd like to go to Nazare in Portugal or the North Shore and watch people surf these colossal waves because it is just, it's incredible. There's like this badass lone figure racing along as a wall of water rises behind them like a monster emerging from the deep. And you're thinking, will they make it? Could I do that? And to me, it's way cooler than watching climbing. Today, we're gonna break the mold a little bit and do an episode swap with Outside. Earlier this year, they took one of our shows, and when it came time to take one of theirs, this episode featuring big wave surfers Jeff Johnson and Cole Christensen made perfect sense to us. First, a story about a young lifeguard eager to prove himself, maybe a little too eager, and second, a story from a North Shore veteran whose work to save the lives of others ended up saving his own. I'm Fitzko Hall. You're listening to the Outside Podcast, on the Dirtbag Diaries. We hope you enjoy. When Jeff Johnson was 16, he and a friend were on vacation in Hawaii, and they made a pact on the beach that they would move there from California after they graduated high school. So they worked through the next couple of summers, they saved up the money, and in 1987, arrived on Oahu Island. You get off the plane, you get in the car, and you drive over the island. When you come over the middle of the island through this town called Wahiwa, you're in the sugarcane fields, and you can see the whole North Shore laid out in front of you, coming down into this this mecca, this playground, and this this almost this uh, war field or something. And uh, some, you know, if there's waves, you can just see the reefs breaking way out there, you know, and and you get that kind of you get those butterflies and. Um, That's a really interesting analogy that you say it's like this playground, but also a war field. Like those are two totally different things. Yeah, totally. And I, I see it more as a playground because even when it gets big, it's still a playground if that's what you're into, you know. Um, but yeah, there can be moments where it can be like a war zone, you know. After moving to the North Shore, Jeff started taking pictures of the surfing scene. And now, almost 35 years later, he's an accomplished photographer, writer, and filmmaker. He became Patagonia's first staff photographer when he was hired to help launch the brand's surfing line. He's gone on to write books and direct acclaimed documentaries about climbing and surfing. But before all that, back in 1994, Jeff was just a young, unproven lifeguard on Oahu's North Shore. And it was his first winter season, working at the hallowed Sunset Beach. And he was eager to prove himself with a real rescue. And on the day that he finally got his chance, he was working alongside a legendary figure in Hawaiian surfing, a tough and intimidating Vietnam veteran named Roger Erickson. Well, I, I knew it was going to get pretty heavy because I'd been listening to the buoy reports. But back then, we didn't really have surf reports. We just had uh, weather radios. And I would wake up, I would set my alarm for the 2 a.m. buoy because whatever happens at 2 a.m. will happen on the North Shore about you know eight hours later. The buoy reading, it was like, 
18 feet, 25 seconds or something like that. So it was a really big swell that was coming. And I showed up the next morning early to set up the tower at Sunset Beach. And I knew I was working with Roger and I knew the waves were going to get big. And it was one of those early in the morning. It was one of those really easy, inviting days at sunset where there was a lot of guys out. The waves were pretty, pretty mellow and pretty clean. And I just knew the shit was going to hit the fan because it, it does really quickly on the North Shore. You can see it go from head high surf to gigantic closing out surf within an hour or two. So things can happen really fast there. And, and I knew it would. So a day like this day is something that you're kind of excited about. When uh, Roger arrived at the tower, I told him, I go, hey, Roger, you know, the, the buoys really jumped last night. It's going to get big really quick. And then when we finally set up the tower and I sat in there with him, we just sat there not talking. He was just in one of his moods. Roger was kind of one of those guys. He was a moody, moody character and he was totally stoic, you know, bearded, um, bearded guy, kind of, you know, super strong, always fit, always working out. And um, I said, hey, um, can I get the first rescue today? And he didn't even look at me. He goes, you can have every damn rescue you want. And I go, okay. So, Jeff, you wrote an essay about all this for Outside a couple of years ago. And uh, one of the things you touch on in it is this sort of tension between the new arrivals like you and the old locals that were already there. Uh, what was it like to drop into that? Well, the North Shore was was um, really the Wild West. It's it's uh, it changed a lot in the early 2000s. Uh, it, it's always been kind of an outlaw, kind of on the fringes type lifestyle out there. And in the 90s, that sentiment was definitely still alive on the North Shore. I moved to the North Shore in the spring of 1990, and you know, I was a total newbie just learning how to surf. And um, it really took me a long time to get used to the atmosphere there, not only the surf, but the locals and kind of the guys that were running the show at the time, you know. I felt I was jumping into the big ring there, you know. And when I first started lifeguarding, back then, you couldn't graduate training and go directly to the North Shore. It wasn't even an option. So you had to spend time um, paying your dues. So prior to this, prior to 1994, I had already done a year on the west side of Oahu and kind of paid my dues for a year out there. And then this was my first winter on the North Shore, my first winter season. You know, it was a tough neighborhood. The, you know, the local Hawaiians, you, ha you had to really watch your step and give them a lot of space and respect. And a guy like me from California, you know, a blonde kid in his early 20s, you're, you're kind of their worst nightmare, you know, like, so you really have to watch your step and keep quiet. And, you know, being a lifeguard in Hawaii and on the North Shore, you, you get the fill and the shoes of some of the greats, you know, and, and uh, you get to share space with some of these guys that are working the tower with you. So you spend you know, all day in the tower with these guys, you know, eight hours a day, um, sitting really close to each other. Back then the towers were really small. It only fit like a couple guys. Jeff was squeezed into the tower with his partner, Roger. And among the legendary North Shore lifeguards, Roger stood out. He was a tough character. And to a young guy like Jeff, very intimidating. 
Roger's one of those guys I always looked up to. He's kind of one of these, the original North Shore hardmen. You know, he, he was a big wave rider all the way from the 60s up and through the 80s and um, still in the 90s. And, uh, you know, he's a Vietnam, a two-time Vietnam vet, and he survived the, the Tet Offensive, which uh, was just a bloody battle with not a lot of survivors. And he... You know, I think the first tour he did, he got drafted and it was during the, you know, kind of the hippie era, Summer of Love. And when he came back, things had changed. It's kind of one of, one of those classic stories where he came back and everybody's wearing flowers in their hair and dropping LSD and all this stuff. And he didn't quite fit in with the new scene. And he got into biker gangs. Um, there's a story of him getting into a big brawl where he, he actually went to jail for uh, leveling a cop. Um, totally stoic, you know, bearded guy, kind of, you know, super strong, always fit, always working out. And um, you never knew what kind of mood Roger would be in. Sometimes you'd sit in the tower with him for eight hours and he wouldn't even talk to you. So going back to the morning um, of the rescue, uh, you were in the tower with Roger that day. You know a big swell's coming. Uh, What did the water look like that day? Well, this day was... uh, Really clean waves, really nice weather, sunny. You know, the wind was offshore and the waves were about double overhead. So there's a lot of guys out there that were kind of just feeling their way out at sunset. They're kind of new new to the game out there. Um, I did my first rescue and brought a guy in and he was really excited about that. He was watching through his binoculars. And so I did my first rescue that day um, early on before it got really big. Um, but a set kind of came in and and within about an hour of us being at the tower you could see a couple bigger sets come in and with these sets you see guys scrambling a little bit and then within an hour and a half to two hours we had a huge set come in and just kind of wipe out the whole lineup and that cleared almost everybody out you know it was that big set came in is probably like four or five waves there's a bunch of guys in the channel with broken boards and all this stuff so i had to go out and help some guys come in and i had to actually rescue one guy and came in i can tell he perked up a bit roger's attitude changed when the shit started to hit the fan so he was super grumpy not even talking to me um you mean then you mean like once he saw the broken boards and saw people out of their element like he got excited yeah, yeah. It was like he perked up a bit, you know. It was like, it was like this is the this is the stuff he loves, you know. And and uh, and I think he was getting a kick out of me watching me do my first rescue. And then you know I I kind of got everybody in, and and no one was in the water, and we put up high surf signs and tape across to keep the tourists out. And and I got up in the tower, and I said, you know, okay, well at least we got everybody. And he goes, and he's looking out there with his binoculars, and he goes, no, it ain't over yet. He gave me the binoculars and there's a kid way out to sea, about three quarters of a mile out there waving his arms. And there wasn't even a question. I was gonna have to go out and get this kid, you know? You know, it was so big at that point, really closed out that um, I was kind of, I kind of got butterflies, but I was also really excited at the same time. And I'd never done a big rescue like this on a board, you know? So, cause you have your, your rescue board, which is this big 11 foot surfboard. And then you have your swim fins on and then your rescue buoy around your neck. And so you have a bunch of gear with you and, and, um, you got to get out there to them. And so 
when I was standing there looking at the shore break, you know, it's this big, huge pounding shore break and I had to time it to get out past the shore break and into the ocean. And, uh, you know, I, I have all my stuff with me and I, I run down there and I jump on the board and I start paddling and I mistimed it and I got caught by this big set right on the shore. It just blasted me up the shore. I mean, it was just total yard sale. My swim fins, my buoy, the board just got blasted up the beach. And I was kind of collecting all the stuff with my head down and there's all these tourists on the beach watching me. And I looked up in the tower and Roger had a big smile on his face and he's pumping his fist into the air, you know? <laughs> and he was just so, ex- he was just a totally different guy from a couple hours ago where he was just being super grumpy, you know? And he was shaking his fist and he was kind of, he was kind of giving me the, that look at my eyes, like, like he's going to make the call for me because he could see better from his vantage point. So I sat up there and I waited for him to kind of give me the call. And he, you know, when he saw cl- he saw a clear way to get out. He just kind of pointed me to go. And then I rushed out there and, and I made it past the shore break. And it took a while to kind of weave my way out into the outer reefs. And the outer reefs are about a half a mile to three quarters of a mile out there. And um, luckily I was able to get out to the kid with, um, with my board and everything. I say kid because, um, you know, he filled out the, we filled that paperwork later and you know, he said he was 17 years old at the time. So, but he was in trouble. He was definitely in trouble. He was, um, drifting in a current, you know, going out to sea, you know, and he was definitely in over his head. I paddled up to him and I kind of had to fake this confidence. Like I'd done this a million times. Um, when I got to him, I was just acting like this was no big deal, you know, like, Oh, Hey, what's going on? You know? And, and um, because I, I really just did my first rescue about an hour and a half before then, you know, so this is like my second rescue and it was much bigger surf. And so um, I told him, I said, hey, you got we got to paddle you back up at sunset because by now we're drifting down the coast a little bit. And so I started paddling with him holding, you know, he was holding on to the back of my paddleboard and he was kind of trying to paddle, too. And I realized he was just dead weight. He couldn't paddle. He was so tired. So we got rid of his board and he jumped on the rescue board. So now we were two on the board and uh, we were in the outer reefs, you know, sunset was totally closed out. And then I, I sat up on the board and then I, it was almost like the music stopped. Like it was like the record stopped. I was like, Holy shit. I just realized I've never done this before. You know, I did it an hour earlier, but it was in smaller surf and it was really close to shore. And it really started to set in, you know, I was looking towards land and all I could see was the backs of these huge waves. And, um, and I was like, okay. And I knew Roger was watching me with the binoculars, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he's like this specter just up at the tower in the background the whole time. Yeah. And it's almost like, it's not even the kid I'm worried about. It's like, I got to make sure I do this for Roger. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's like, uh, it's the, the big test, you know, and I know he's, I can almost feel him breathing down my, by my neck, you know, you know, when you, when you do the training in lifeguard training, you practice these rescues in a calm bay, you know, you, you, you they don't really go out and, you know, huge surf to do these rescues. You do these practice rescues in small surf or just in flat water. So there's no real um, answer to how to do it. You know, I, I just had to figure it out <laughs> on my own, you know, and 
what I did basically is I said, I told the kid, I said, look, um, you know, the board has these big handles on the front. And I said, when I say paddle, you paddle as hard as you can. But when I say stop, you got to hold on to these handles and just don't let go. And he said, you know, he said, okay. And I could tell he was scared and, but I was still trying to pretend like this is nothing, you know? So what I did is I waited for a good set to come in and we paddled for it and we paddled and we paddled and paddled and we were caught in it just about ready to drop and I was almost tempted to just just ride the wave but that could have been disastrous so what I did is as soon as we were about to take off on it I just dug in my legs and let the wave pass us so we coasted down the back of the wave and then I said start paddling again and so we started paddling started paddling and I just hear this great crash behind us and I remember having a moment where I thought that was so peculiar because in surfing, you're never in that position. And so I just said, hold on. And, and he held on and I leaned back on the tail of the board to keep the nose up. And we just got swallowed up by this whitewater. And I totally wrote us off. You know, I said, there's no way we're going to come out of this with the board. We're just going to get ripped apart here. It was like being inside a rocket ship miraculously we got shot out of the wave and onto the flats and we're bouncing onto the flats and then the wave kind of gobbled us up again and then shot us out again and we just got this total hell ride all the way to the inside and uh, when we got close to the, the the sand I just pushed him into this little wave and the wave pushed him up into the crowd because there was a bunch of tourists behind uh, tape you know we had taped off the beach and he just flew up into the crowd and the whole the whole crowd cheered and everything <laughs> and, and you know it was such a great feeling you know i felt like a hero you know you i felt like i really saved this kid's life you know and and um i got back up in the tower and about 15 minutes later and i looked outside and a huge outer reef wave broke right where we just were um like a giant giant wave and um if, if I had been, you know, 20 minutes later, we would have been out there riding. It, it would have been a really bad situation. So we just made it in in time. Yeah, Roger might have had to finally get out of the tower and get in the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and come get me, you know. But it's funny, too, you know, it's... um. It was such. It was one of the greatest feelings I ever had to be able to save somebody's life like that, and and all the training that you do, and all the thought that you put into it, that it actually worked out. What was Roger's reaction when you guys finally uh, washed up on the beach in front of everybody? I, you know, I don't really remember what his reaction was then. Um, a little while later, I was uh, I was eating lunch, and he was sitting next to me, and he's still not talking much, you know. Um, I forget the conversation. I said something, and then he he uh, he he gave me kind of a compliment that was huge for me. He said, "You know," he goes, "That was textbook. That was textbook." You know, and and for me, that was like the biggest compliment I've ever had. You know, it's just like, you know, <laughs> but it was so, you know, so Roger. He just he just qu- kind of quietly mumbled that. You know. <laughs> As a lifeguard, when you work at Pipeline, you're there all day. You're there, you know, from nine to five, basically. And you're seeing guys just pull into closeouts and wiping out all day. The Hawaii lifeguards are some of the most incredible 
um, people in the world and some of the best lifesavers I've ever got to know and, and um, being a lifeguard, you know, it's, it's definitely not, they're definitely not in it for the money, <laughs> you know. It's, it's uh, some of the most rewarding work you could ever do. Coming up after the break, a surfer whose wipeout on the North Shore nearly cost him his life. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Maybe you've got a side gig that you want to get started. Well, I think the time is now, my friend, but you're going to need a website. Whatever it is, Squarespace's all-in-one website platform is designed with people like you and me in mind. So when we built our websites or had to redo them, because that's happened multiple times through the years, we choose Squarespace because it's easy to build with, it's customizable, and it's a cinch to update. So fewer headaches. And reality, it gets us back to doing what we're really good at, which is making podcasts. Squarespace tools make it easy to showcase and even sell whatever your heart desires. Their new interactive design experience is called Squarespace Blueprint AI. I think it's pretty neat because it gives you more design control, layouts, fonts, color palettes, and more, allowing for your website to stand out in its own unique way. Answer five questions and you're ready to go. And if you're selling something, they have many flexible payment options for your customers. You can use PayPal, credit cards, Apple Pay. It makes checkout seamless for you and your customers. Check out Squarespace for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com backslash diaries to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, we all have different stressors in our lives and figuring out how to work and grow through them is part of being human. For me, being outside, moving my body, it's always been a critical part of my mental health and maybe for you too, but there's also been times where no amount of fresh air or exertion would have gotten me through what was weighing me down. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and grow. Talking with a therapist can help you learn how to set boundaries, develop positive coping skills, or manage a difficult life transition. Here's how it works. Go to the website, answer a few questions, and BetterHelp will match you with a licensed therapist. The appointments are all online, so it's convenient to schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com backslash diaries to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash diaries hawaii's north shore has changed a lot since 1994 when jeff johnson did his first rescue at sunset beach and so was surfing there's been a huge influx of money and big name sponsors and organized professional competitions have become a global industry 
And this summer, surfing will at last make its Olympic debut in Tokyo, over 50 years after Hawaiian surfing legend Duke Kahanamoku first pushed for its inclusion. The sport's rising popularity has brought more and more attention to the North Shore in recent decades, where every winter, the big waves still arrive, beckoning each new generation. The swells come and go, the barrels roll along, and the wipeouts keep folks humble. This is true even for surfers that have been riding waves here their whole life. You know, the ocean is ever-changing. There's no moment where it's the same. Cole Christensen is a North Shore local and a well-known big wave surfer. He's surfed just about everywhere there's good waves since he was a kid. You get variations and, and different feelings from that experience, but the wave itself will always be different. And those who commit, you know, a lifetime to it will reap the rewards or not. This past New Year's Eve, about a mile down the beach from where Jeff Johnson saved his first life, Cole nearly lost his own. When we talked for this story, he was sitting at his farm in Kailua, recovering from emergency brain surgery. Exactly a month before our conversation, Cole and a friend had gone out to surf Pipeline, one of the world's most tantalizing waves. There's a special wave that we all know what we're looking for out there. It's a, it's, it's a big tube ride. And there's certain waves that do it, and there's a lot that don't. And I think around 9.30 or so, or 10, whenever it was, it was mid-morning, the sun started to kind of come out, the wind started filling in, and we knew it was probably cleaning up and looking better, so we, we blasted back down to pipeline, and it looked like it was starting to get good. So I jumped off, um, I paddled out, and um, it was beautiful. Um, light winds, sunny, um, there were still some big second reef waves, um, and I was stoked. And to get a great wave up pipeline is um, something that takes a lifetime, unless you get super lucky. Um, there's a pecking order in the crowd. There's only so many good ones. And it, it's only good, you know, really good a handful of times a year, maybe a couple handfuls of times a year, depending on the year. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lifelong relationship. Pipeline's majesty comes from the fact that the things that make it a perfect wave are the same things that make it so difficult. Weather conditions need to be just so. You need to be in the right spot at the right moment. And the reefs are ever-present, looming just beneath the surface. So it's just a combination of being in the right spot in the water, um, being lucky, um, or just being in that moment and having that wave come to you. And um, it just all kind of just harmoniously working out for you. In some areas around Pipeline, the water's only a few feet deep when it meets the reef, which means if you wipe out in the wrong spot, a wave is pounding you straight into jagged coral. So the heavier the swell, the heavier the consequences. I was talking to my buddy Kalani Chapman um, right before this set came. Uh, Kalani Chapman, I think it was two years ago, um, also hit his head and drowned and was rescued by the lifeguards and um, revived on the beach. 
Um, so it was, it was interesting that I was sitting there talking to Kalani right before I caught this wave and this wave came and it wasn't, it was a okay wave, but I could catch it from the outside and ride it through. It wasn't, I knew it wasn't going to be a, um, lifetime wave or, or one of the ones I was really looking for, but it was more of like a, a good warm up, you know, I get my feet on the board. I rode it in to the inside and it kind of walled out and I felt like I could pull into the tube and, and go for a while and then, you know, whatever. It wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't the best one. In a video taken from that day, you can see Cole drop in. And then almost the moment after he locks into the tube, the wave stretches out ahead of him and closes out. He pumps his board to move faster, but the wave swallows him up. And I fell, and I feel like I just went straight to the bottom. And the way the wave broke, it kind of pulled back to the, a really shallow part of the reef right between pipeline and back door. So we're talking like, you know, feet deep right there. Um, the last thing I remember was pulling into that tube. And the next thing I remember was laying on the flat board with an oxygen mask looking up at the um, North Shore lifeguards. The wave had thrown Cole headfirst into the reef, knocking him out and gashing his head open. After being pulled out of the water and stabilized by the lifeguards, Cole was rushed to the Queen's Medical Center in Honolulu. The trauma doctors found that Cole had a fractured skull and an epidural hematoma, meaning that he was bleeding in between his skull and his brain. In some medical circles, that's known as a talk and die, named after a patient that could be talking and acting normally until suddenly the bleeding becomes fatal. After the hospital staff notified his wife, herself a doctor at a different hospital, Cole was rushed into surgery. You've seen the movie Hannibal, where they cut the guy's skull off? I didn't know this until the post-op appointment, I think, out of protection um, of myself. <laughs> but he, they, he, he told me and showed me pictures of what they did, but it was the size of like a large egg or a baseball um, that he cut around the circumference of the spiderweb fracture and removed the whole plate, the circular plate of my skull, um, cleaned out all the blood, sutured up the dura layer, the dura layer that was torn, and then replaced the plate and butterflied it in with um, five or six metal plates on the outside with little screws, and then put plates on some of the larger fractures on the inside. And I was like, wow, really? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I was kind of blown away. I'm glad I didn't know what he did until three weeks later. So now you've been in recovery for about a month. Uh, it seems like it's going well. What's that been like these past few weeks? Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, a lot of a lot of the immediate questions were, will I ever surf pipeline again? Do I want to keep surfing big waves? Or, you know, those things kind of have run in and out of my head. And I feel oddly at peace with myself right now. And, and and the surf and and you know I I'm just gonna take it day by day. I don't think there's I don't think I need to answer that question to myself right now. Um, I feel happy. I feel um, 
the power of being present with my my daughters and my family and um the waves by the way have been going off um pipeline has been good um again and usually i would feel um what do we call it we call it fomo nowadays i would feel a strong sense of fomo but i just kind of i'm just kind of laughing and I, i just feel like this i almost feel like i'm buzzing and um just being just being present and being alive and, and being able to spend this bonus time with uh, my daughters that I might not have been here for being a committed big wave surfer like Cole means that you know just how bad it could have been in 2011 Cole's friend Sion Malowski drowned after a wipeout at Mavericks in California. According to a surfer that was there that day with him, a large wave that Sion was riding closed out on top of him, pushing him below the water, only to be held under by a second wave that crashed right after. His body was eventually recovered almost a mile from where it happened. It was a sobering incident among the community, and it led Cole and his friend and fellow surfer Danilo Cotto to a simple realization that... As surfers, they were not professional lifesavers, but always found themselves in situations that might need lifesaving. That didn't make sense. They should have the skills to perform the basic rescues they needed to. Um, so we started with a CPR class in, in my barn, and then we sought out our mentor um, and one of the most, if not the most highly qualified um, lifeguard waterman in the world, Brian Kiolana, on the west side in Makaha, and asked him if he would share his knowledge with us and teach us how to rescue using jet skis, without jet skis, just be, just teach us. Brian Kiolana agreed to teach them what he knew, with one caveat, that he keep sharing his knowledge forward to everyone they could. And they did. Over the next couple of years, their efforts evolved into an organization called the Big Wave Risk Assessment Group, dedicated to educating and training surfers about the risks they take and how to be safe while doing them. And eventually, as they gave more and more presentations around the world, the goal to have more people in the water that could save a life became real. But personally, for Cole, it wasn't until his fateful day at Pipeline that everything came full circle. So back up about... um to the moment I was paddling out, jumping off the jet ski, um, Andrew Del Greco, another North Shore lifeguard, came down on the jet ski to check the waves. Um, he was supposed to be at Waimea, but he just kind of had this feeling like he wanted to come down because if there was anything going to go down that morning, he felt like it was going to be a pipeline. Cole and Andrew said hi to each other before Cole paddled into the wave. And when Andrew saw Cole wipe out, he rushed in on his jet ski and saw Cole floating face down. He um, recognized the fact that I needed some oxygen, so he jumped off the jet ski, um, lifted my head out of the water, and started yelling my name. And as he was doing that, I took a breath. Now, if he had not jumped off the ski, 
um, and got my head out of the water, I would probably have been in a, or I would have been in a CPR situation along with my fractured skull, which um, would have increased the odds for a lot of complications. So um, it was a heroic and a maneuver by Andrew, and it was pretty rad. I got to see him um, at our baby loa. We had our first baby loa for my youngest daughter last weekend, and he came, and it was pretty, pretty powerful. I, I haven't ever been on the um, rescuee side of uh, rescue, and until you're there, it's it's hard to um, to put into words the the grasp of the uh, of the magnitude of the appreciation and, and feelings that and emotions that come out um, knowing that you would not be here today if it was not for this other person rescuing you. I think being on the rescuee side and is different than being on the rescuer side, and I had never felt this way. I had met a lot of the people that had been rescued, and you can see it in their eyes, you can even see their appreciation, but until you're there, um, you can't really quantify it or, or put it in words, so. Um, feeling different, I um, am really excited about the years to come, and and how I can help um, spread the um, spread the knowledge and save more lives. It's a funny thing, the cycle that risk goes through with sports like this. People push the boundaries of what's considered possible, which leads to the evolution of better equipment and safer techniques. And then once people get comfortable with the better equipment and the safer techniques, they keep on pushing boundaries. And the cycle repeats, wave after wave. So while Cole's response to his friend's death years ago might have felt small at the time, just doing a CPR class in his barn, it just might have caused a ripple that became a lifetime wave at Pipeline. This episode was produced by Alex Ward and edited by Michael Roberts. Additional production help from Cordelia Zars. Music by Robbie Carver and Holy Coast. You can find a link to the outside story on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you've been listening to Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks to Outside Magazine for sharing. I hope you enjoyed it. It's pretty cool. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it.